Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number eight, Deuteronomy chapter six. Okay, although we've spoken of it a bit, the focus of Deuteronomy chapter six centers on verses four through nine, and especially verses four and five. Verses 4 and 5 are considered so important to the faith of Yehovah worship that it's been given a separate title, and we sang about it tonight, the Shema. Now the Shema goes by another name that Christians are more familiar with, the Hear, O Israel. Now so fundamental to the basis of the entire Torah and to all Christian principles is the Shema. So we're going to examine it closely this evening. And for those who say mistakenly that Jesus Christ came to distance himself and his followers from the Torah, despite his forceful statement to the contrary in Matthew 5, 17 through 19, I'd like you to hear this passage from the Gospel of Mark. And by the way, this same passage is in all the synoptic Gospels, and this is from Mark 12, 28 to 30. It says this, And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, Tell me, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now listen to Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Yeshua was, of course, quoting... The Shema in the Gospels. He was quoting the Torah. But to listen to many evangelical church leaders today, one would think everything Jesus did was to essentially say, okay, throw away everything you ever knew. I'm going to give you brand new laws and commands that replaces everything that came before. Further notice that Jesus also didn't drop the word Israel from this statement, nor does he replace it, by the way, with the word church. (laughs) It occurs to me that usually when we're asked what the greatest commandment is, we've all been pretty well trained. And, And we know it. We know it. So we immediately respond with, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and strength, and then usually we'll add, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Since we're but quoting Messiah, why is it that we misquote him? Why do we start quoting him halfway through that scriptural statement? Why do we drop the, hear, O Israel... The Lord is our God. The Lord is one that precedes it. Therefore, Gentile Christians, 
If we're going to say that there are commands that are only for Israel and these are separate from commands that are only for the church, then along with disposing of the Ten Commandments, which were given to Israel as part of the law, intellectual honesty compels us to throw out this Torah command from Jesus to love God as the God of Israel. Now, just so I'm not misunderstood, I am stating emphatically that there are not separate commands and gospels for Israel versus for the church, and that, of course, the Ten Commandments and the Shema are for the church just as they are for Israel. I am also stating that it is heartbreaking and infuriating that for so many centuries, institutional Christianity has chosen to declare the abolishment of Torah supposedly to be replaced with Jesus' establishment of a whole new religion, completely apart from the Hebrew faith. A religion by, of, and for Gentiles. You know, we have been led down and pretty easily accepted a crooked path. And the fruit of that acceptance is the enactment of a whole series of false doctrines, that have led to the Crusades, the Inquisition, the reestablishment of secular humanism, and the Holocaust. And now in our time, our beloved church, our beloved church, has become powerless, self-absorbed, prosperity-oriented, all the while it ignores the impact of the prophetic rebirth of Israel and the return of Jerusalem to the control of the Hebrews. We have seen our Christian institutions move towards outsourced ministry, a watered-down but diversely tolerant gospel, a Jesus who is separate from the Father, a denial of sin and evil, their existence, and the observance of paganized holidays while ignoring those that the Lord himself has declared holy. You know, the Shema ought to be a wake-up call to God's people, all of God's people. Let's read together this inscrutably deep Sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, which exposes that molten core of Torah, the Shema. Because it powers God's word. Just as the molten core of our planet powers this earth's vital processes. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commands, the laws and rulings which Adonai your God ordered me to teach you for you to obey in the land you are crossing over to possess. So that you will fear Adonai your God and observe all his regulations and mitzvot that I'm giving to you. You, your child, your grandchild, as long as you live so that you will have long life. Therefore, listen, Israel, take care to obey so that things will go well with you, so that you will increase greatly, as Adonai, the God of your ancestors, promised you by giving you a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear Israel, Adonai. Our God, Adonai, is one. And you are to love Adonai, your heart, your God, with all of your heart, all of your being, all of your resources. These words which I'm ordering you today are to be on your heart. You're to teach them carefully to your children. You're to talk about them when you sit at home. When you're traveling on the road. When you lie down. When you get up. Tie them on your hand as a sign. Put them at the front of a headband around your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your house. On your gates. When Adonai your God has brought you into the land, he swore to your ancestors, Avraham, Yisach, and Yaakov, that he would give you cities great and prosperous, which you didn't build. Houses full of all sorts of good things, which you didn't fill. Water cisterns dug out, which you didn't dig. Vineyards and olive trees, which you didn't plant. And you've eaten your fill then be careful not to forget Adonai who brought you out of the land of Egypt where you lived as slaves. You're to fear Adonai, your God. Serve him. Swear by his name. You are not to follow other gods chosen from the gods of the peoples around you because Adonai, your God, who is here with you, is a jealous God. If you do, the anger of Adonai, your God, will flare up against you and he will destroy you from the face of the earth. Do not put Adonai, your God, to the test, as you tested him at Massah. Observe diligently the mitzvot of Adonai, your God, and his instructions and laws which he's given you. You are to do what is right and good in the sight of Adonai, so that things will go well with you. And you will enter and possess the good land Adonai swore to your ancestors, expelling all of your enemies ahead of you, as Adonai said. Someday your child will ask you, what is the meaning of the instructions, laws, and rulings which Adonai or God has laid down for you? Then you will tell your child, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and Adonai brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Adonai worked great and terrible signs and wonders against Egypt, Pharaoh, all of his household before our very eyes. He brought us out from there in order to bring us to the land he had sworn to our ancestors that he'd give us. Adonai ordered us to observe all these laws, to fear Adonai our God always for our own good, so that he might keep us alive as we are today. It will be our righteousness for us if we are careful to obey all of these mitzvot before Adonai our God, just as he has ordered us to do. During chapters 1 through 5, Deuteronomy, Moses has been building up to this point. A restatement, maybe even a reintroduction of the laws and commands given to Israel by Yehovah from Mount Sinai. Now I cannot emphasize enough that the reason for Moses repeating these regulations that have already been given to Israel some 40 years earlier is that they are being presented to an entire new generation. Okay, These Hebrews, who had obviously not been taught these laws by their parents, who were that first generation of Exodus that are now all 
dead and buried out in the desert sands. Further, he is giving it to the group that is about to do what their parents refused to do. Conquer the land of Canaan. These people are but days away from entering into a long-term battle, a holy war, that's going to cost thousands of them their lives. Moses affirms that what he is about to teach them is exactly what the Lord told him to give to Israel the first time. Nothing more, nothing less. And that these laws and rulings are to be scrupulously followed when they enter the promised land. The reason Israel needs to follow the Torah is so that things will go well with Israel and that all the blessings that the Lord has ready for them will be realized. The last half of verse 3 brings two thoughts together. First, what is being prepared for them in Canaan is far more than mere survival. It's abundant life. Okay, that's the meaning of the phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey. Second, Israel is reminded that what is about to happen, the inheritance of a land of their own, is the fulfillment of the promise, that Abrahamic covenant, given to their fathers, meaning the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice that the covenant established on Mount Sinai 40 years earlier did not abolish and replace the covenant given to Abraham 600 years before Israel left Egypt. Rather, this covenant of Moses is for another purpose. Okay? It is to set down rules and standards for living the redeemed life that will be enjoyed inside the land that was promised by that first covenant. So here standing on the foothills of Moab, Moses gives the original version of the Sermon on the Mount that the Messiah will emulate 1,300 years later. Thus Moses is not simply going to reiterate the law. Rather, he is going to expound upon it and do what he can to make clear the underlying principles, the spirit behind these timeless commands. Now, I wasn't speaking figuratively or making hyperbole when I compared Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount to what we're reading right now in Deuteronomy. The similarities are quite striking. And as time goes on, I think you're going to see that this is the case. Yeshua was merely drawing upon the pattern laid down by his predecessor Moses. Notice that Moses has already, one chapter earlier, back in chapter 5, has already begun to recount the law. In fact, his address to the people actually began back in chapter 1. So already well into the re-giving of the laws, he now pauses to lay down the all-encompassing principle upon which all the law rests. And the, that principle is the one with the title of the Shema. Why do this? Why pause and inject this spiritual principle at this point? 
if this is something that everything that Moses has already taught stands upon, why wait to give it in the middle of his sermon instead of at the very beginning? Simple. Moses did not want the people to mistakenly see the laws he had already given to them in the context that it certainly could sound like they are as merely a set of strict legal rulings held over their heads by an all-powerful heavenly ruler. Okay. In that era, every society had a legal code that a king held as immutable. And at the same time, these kings had no obligation or interest in explaining to the people the reasoning for these laws, because all too often these laws were just self-serving to the benefit of the royalty. The implication is that these are the laws, you don't need to know why, just do them or else. That was not the case with the Lord's Torah. Since Moses had already revisited several of the laws, particularly the Ten Commandments, with this new generation, and, and, and there were many more rulings yet to follow, God, through Moses, says, Okay, hold on a second now, my people, because I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Okay, Here is the context within which you are to understand and carry out all of my laws. Then Moses goes on to explain in what eventually came to be called the Shema that Israel's love of the Lord is the necessary context for doing the law. It is the law that establishes the terms of the relationship between Yehoveh and Israel. The source of Israel's obedience to Yehoveh was not to spring from a barren and merciless legalism. Rather, it was to go forth from a response of love. Now, please hear this. The Lord says that obedience to Him is the response of love as He defines it. That to love him is to be obedient to him. Today, the Western church says that generally speaking, obedience and love are somewhere between being entirely different things and maybe are even mutually exclusive to some degree or another. In fact, it is usually implied that love is preferable to obedience as concerns our relationship with God. However, in the Holy Scriptures, God says that one is the evidence of the other. God says that obedience to Him is the act of loving Him. And that loving Him is embodied in our obedience to Him. As much as we might like to, we can't disconnect obedience from love as involves our allegiance to and relationship with God. You see, it's only since Greco-Roman times that the concept of love moved away from being primarily an action and instead became primarily an emotion, a sensation of inner warmth. The biblical Hebrews would never have recognized the modern, secular, and Christian viewpoint of love as being a warm, fuzzy feeling of compassion 
compassion or affection. And I went to the Webster's New World Dictionary, as a matter of fact. And in the nine different definitions they gave to the word love, every single one of them spoke only of emotion. Here are some of the examples. Tender feelings, affection, sexual passion, a feeling of brotherhood, a strong liking. But to the Hebrew and to the Lord, love demands an outward response, an action, or simply not love. The Lord says, don't say you love me and then turn around and deny my commandments because I say if you deny my commandments, then you do not love me. That's a hard one, isn't it? Okay, let's turn our attention for a moment to the more familiar, at least to Christians, Sermon on the Mount of the New Testament. Matthew 5 begins this pivotal teaching that's at the core of of our Christian faith. And it begins by explaining that Jesus stations himself on a hilltop, whereupon he begins to teach. And the first few of his glorious teachings are what Christendom has titled the Beatitudes. Now, Yeshua opens this sermon by listing several positive statements of heavenly fact that have, of course, always been so, but were, of late, being repressed by the religious leadership. And these heavenly facts had become so lost in a morass of men's rulings and philosophies that they had all but been forgotten. Blessed are the poor in spirit, says Yeshua, for they shall see the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Several more of these crucial heavenly facts are listed. And then he said, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely on account of me. He moves on and he tells the people, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light to the world. And then suddenly, while he's deep into his sermon, Jesus the mediator, the second Moses, if you would, abruptly pauses to make a very important interjection. Just as Moses abruptly suspended his sermon so as to make sure his listeners were not taking what he was saying in the wrong context that we're all tempted to do, Jesus essentially says, hold on a second, because I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Here's the context within which you are to understand what I'm teaching you today. And then Yeshua says this, now don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed. I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a yud or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commands and teaches others to do so is going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, after making this dramatic and sweeping statement so that every hearer could not possibly walk away thinking that Yeshua has just thrown Moses' law away for a new law or that he has not declared that Moses is, is, is irrelevant, Messiah continues with his sermon. And in Matthew 5.21, he begins, You have heard, heard that the ancients were told, and then he lists several basic tenets of the law. Within each one of those tenets, Jesus expounded on their meaning. Why? Because just as mindless physical ritual had replaced spirit-filled obedience based on the love of God, so had men's philosophies thoroughly corrupted the meaning and purpose of God's commandments. And wouldn't you just know it? Despite our Messiah's warning, just as the Israelite society had slowly forgotten their love of Yehovah and severed away the grace and mercy that was the vital underpinning of the law, so have Jesus' followers slowly forgotten our love of him and severed away obedience from our walk and our worship. We have done the exact thing he told us not to do. We have adopted the exact context of his ministry that he told us not to accept. Just as so much of Israel turned to a mechanical following of laws as their expression of faith, so has much of the church turned to a display of emotions and a mechanical following of church liturgy as our expressions of faith. Both ways often devoid of the one ingredient necessary for either to have any meaning or relevance. Love of the Lord as evidenced by our obedience. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is Echad, the Lord is one. In Hebrew, here is Shema. It does not mean passive listening like playing a CD and quietly enjoying the music. Nor does it mean to read the Gospels or the Psalms as a source of information or knowledge. Shema is an instruction to take action. Shema means to hear and obey, to listen to God's instructions and do it. Next it says that Yehovah is our God, Yehovah is one. There are some minor differences among the Hebrew sages over exactly what Yehovah is one is supposed to indicate to us. Some rabbis believe that this statement is merely another way to make clear this revolutionary notion that there is but one God in all existence. Others believe that this is speaking of God's self-unity, a nature of oneness. That is, that he's not like the other gods of that era that tended to kind of divide themselves and to be associated with various locations and various shrines. Still others say that this is an expression of the proper relationship between God and Israel. That is, Yehovah is Israel's only God and they're not to look to the others. Well, in my opinion, 
This is kind of the weakness of the academic discipline called literary criticism that tends to tear apart every sentence and then to scientifically determine how we ought to take it. Because faith and spirituality get left out. And since the Bible is a document based on faith and spirituality, the point can get lost. As I look at the words, Yehoveh Elo, uh, Eloheinu, Yehoveh Echad, Yehoveh is our God, Yehoveh One, I see an enormous God principle that expresses a universal spiritual reality. Therefore, it takes several human expressions to even approximate its, its essence. In other words, let's say, for example, that we travel to an alien planet in a faraway galaxy and the inhabitants there ask us where we came from. And we say, well, it's a place called Earth. And then they say, well, what's Earth? And we respond with a whole list of Earth's attributes. Well, let's see, it's round, kind of revolves around a star we call the sun. Climate's pretty temperate, it's mostly water. But there's a lot of land to live on. That's the sort of thing we tell them. Now, if this happened to be an alien literary critic... he might respond, well, which one is it? Is it round? Or does it have a lot of water? Or does it have a lot of land? Or is it a temperate climate? It's got to be one of those. See, that's sort of how literary critics operate. There's, there's no room for complex and multifaceted meanings for any given statement. Of course, our reply to our alien literary critic would be probably that our planet's all of these things and a lot more, but there doesn't seem to be anything in that alien world that we can use as an illustration. Well, that's the nature of Yehoveh Eloheinu, Yehoveh Echad. To analyze what that means and all the characteristics it entails cannot be simplified by forming this into a doctrine or one characteristic or another and nothing in our limited four-dimensional physical world or finite human minds can be used to illustrate the vast spiritual reality that this principle of God being one embodies. At the very least we can say It means that the Lord God is the only God that exists. That he is the only object of worship that is permitted for his believers. That he is completely unified. There's not various pieces of him that can be separated into persons. And he is our God in the sense that he has established a mutual relationship between himself and everyone who will submit to him in love. Further, we know his formal name, yud Hey vav Hey, And we know from the first two words of the Shema Israel that this statement of his being and his nature was directed to Israel. And by definition, all the world that would join themselves to Israel. 
there's more contained in this short statement and the rabbis have contemplated this for centuries and at great length. And well beyond what the rabbis have concluded, there is more to those four simple words than our limited Hebrew minds will ever be able to comprehend about this cosmic principle. But also notice something that cannot be coincidence. This central confession of faith that consists of just four letters is the same as Yehovah's name consisting of only four letters. Let's move on. Look at the beginning of the second part of the Shema, which is, you shall love the Lord your God. Or more literally, you shall love Yehovah your Elohim. Now, here's an excellent context to again examine the word love. Because if one decides that love is primarily an emotion, then we find that here the Lord is commanding an emotion. You shall love. Here's the problem. Of all the things that a man can do, conjuring up a real emotion if we don't actually feel it is a pretty difficult task at best, except maybe for movie actors and those among us who have the deepest sensitivities. We can often outwardly mimic an emotion. We can pretend. We can even bring ourselves to real tears. But can any man be ordered to actually have and hold an emotion? Can a man order another man to feel a certain way? What do we do when we're horribly sad and then a dear friend or pastor exhorts us to just, well, let's just be joyful? Have you ever had that happen? How well did you do? Let's say a husband doesn't want to deal with his wife's depressed state and he says, hey, cheer up. As much as she might want to, if only to please her husband. Usually she can't, although some of them get awfully good at faking it. The point is, good luck in commanding an emotion. Believe me, I've tried. So is God commanding us to have an emotion of love towards Him? Now when it comes to commanding a physical action, that's a little different issue. God can command us, uh, command us to avoid worshiping other gods. We certainly have the capacity to obey that. God can command us to celebrate a physical, biblical feast, and we can physically do it. In fact, we can disagree inwardly with the Lord about these things. We can even feel indifferent about them and still obey the commandment. However, true love of God does also involve more than a physical action. Love is a state of mind as well as a physical response. In fact, I would say that the type of love that is a godly love also includes the state of our spirit. 
Is there an emotional component to love? Certainly there is. Certainly there is. However, I would say that the emotion of love ought to be the final result of all the other factors being in place first. But of all the components that comprise godly, biblical love, emotion is certainly not the chief one, nor should it be the guiding one. Now because there is no more important aspect of our relationship to the Creator than to love Him, allow me to maybe offer another way to look at this command to love God. It's in the Shema. Love is the opposite of hate. Often in the scriptures we are told to hate things that God hates. Again, due to our Western mindsets, we tend to see hatred in the same way as we see love, as primarily an emotion. In fact, as Rabbi Baruch taught in his excellent study of Ezekiel, the biblical meaning of hate is closer to what in English is the word reject. To hate biblically means to reject. Or in a higher essence, especially as it concerns our relationship with God, it would mean to demonstrate unfaithfulness. To hate God is for us to demonstrate unfaithfulness. To hate God is to reject God, thus to be unfaithful to Him. To hate His Torah is to reject His Torah and to be unfaithful to its laws and commands. Conversely, to love God is to accept Him and display faithfulness. Of course, more than mere acceptance or an outward display of loyalty is involved, so total submission is the highest essence of this acceptance. Yet is it not the common call of the evangelist that a non-believer needs to accept Jesus Christ? And in a general sense, Christians know what accepting Yeshua means. The Bible defines this type of acceptance as submission and obedience, which is the evidence of the love that the Lord is looking for. In the last half of verse 5, we are told to embody this love of Yehovah with all of our heart, our soul, and our might. In Hebrew, the words are levav, nefesh, and bechol medecha. Heart is absolutely a correct rendering of levav. It was indeed referring to that organ inside our chests that pumps blood. But the problem of understanding just what those ancient Hebrews meaning of the term levav as it applies to what function the heart performs beyond just pumping blood is critical to our reading of the entire word of God. See, that is what we're instructed, rather that is when we're, uh, when we're instructed to store away something in our hearts, or we're not to have hate for our brothers in our hearts, 
and our levav, what does that mean? In our Western culture and in the church, we speak of the heart as the seat of our emotions and of our morality and even of our character. That is not what the Hebrews thought or meant when they spoke the word heart and we have to learn to think of it as they meant it all those hundreds and thousands of years ago. The Hebrews knew of the heart as the seat of the intellect and of conscious thought. The place of memory. The place where actions are contemplated, where decisions are made. Let me stress that what I just told you is not conjecture. Any competent Bible scholar will agree with that. Because it's just well-documented historic fact. It was at a much later date, the late Hellenistic period to, to around the medieval times, that the function of the brain was finally understood to be where intellect and thought processes resided. So the heart, so rather to the heart, was transferred the functions of emotion, desire, and passion to be in line with Greek thought on the matter. But this redefining of the function of the heart didn't occur until centuries after the Bible was closed up and completed. The point is that while translating the word lev or levab to heart, the heart organ, while that is technically correct, the function it intended to communicate to us is not how we've been typically taught. Whether Old Testament or New Testament, when we see the word heart in the Bible, we ought to simply scratch it out and insert the word brain or mind. That's what it's getting at. Okay, so we've discussed what is meant by with all our heart and learned that in modern English we ought to take that to mean with all of our mind, with all of our intellect. The second part of this statement, with all of our soul, is not so straightforward. Because the Hebrew word being used, nefesh, is a little more difficult. And so it's been translated a number of ways. Most often it's translated as soul. At other times it's translated as being. I've even seen it written in some Bibles as essence. Now, none of these are necessarily wrong or better or worse than the others. The problem lies in the rather hazy nature of the word nefesh. Nefesh carries with it a whole host of meanings. And I think that, as when we discuss the phrase, Yehovah is our God, Yehovah is one, it's not that there's one preeminent or perfect definition of nefesh. Rather, it's that all that I'm about to tell you and a lot more goes into the makeup of that word. The rabbis say that nefesh entails life. It entails our life essence, breath, the mysterious breath of life that God breathes into his created creatures to make them alive, the self, that unique quality that makes us at once human and yet also in God's image, the soul, 
and at times can even refer to our deepest inmost thoughts. The final part of that statement, usually translated as with all your might, is Bekol Meodeka. This is a rare phrase in the Bible. But the rabbis say it is approximately equal to the more usual be meod meod, which means very, very much. The idea is that we are to put forth exceedingly great effort and conscious thought into loving God. Once again, dispensing with this modern notion that it's all about a feeling even though feeling is certainly a a legitimate but lesser element of love. And that loving Him is what the Lord expects from us. Interestingly, Deuteronomy is the first book of the Torah to actually speak in length about loving God. Previous books spoke in terms of having awe and reverence and fear of God. Now let me be clear, this in no way means that Moses is now saying, well, forget the awe, reverence, and fear deal. We're just going to replace all that now with love. Rather, the idea is that awe and reverence is to be in the context of love. Or as with the correct biblical definition of what love is, awe and reverence is to be in the context of acceptance, loyalty, and submission to the Lord. Now, get ready to have another long-standing doctrine get challenged. Because verse 6 says this in Deuteronomy 6, And these words which I am commanding you today shall be written on your heart. The words God is commanding are just another way of saying His laws. And where does this verse say these laws of God are to be written? On our heart. Oh my, the law of Moses is to be written on the Israelites' hearts? I thought it was only a New Testament manifestation that the Torah was to be written on our hearts. Isn't that what we've always been taught? Isn't it a basic Christian axiom that the reason we have to abandon the Torah is it because it was a mechanical legal code written on cold, hard stone tablets and that it was a way to work and thereby merit our way to heaven? And that in the New Testament we switch to a different system of new rules and commandments from Messiah and these are written on our hearts rather than on stone. And by grace through faith, we can have heaven opened up to us. I mean, it's amazing. Let me read this to you again. They're in your Bibles too. And these words, Moses says, which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. Amazing what truth emerges when we actually read the Torah and not just make assumptions about it. But just as with the New Testament... Recognize that what this means in modern English is that the Torah, God's commands, and Yeshua's commands are to be held 
in our minds. Therefore, they can be known. They can be contemplated. They can be mulled over and acted upon rather than just felt. The law codes of the United States and other nations are separate from us. They change. More added. Some are dropped altogether. Our job in secular society is just to keep track of them. In fact, we outsource that problem to attorneys for the most part. But the essence of the notion that God's laws are to be written on our hearts, our minds, is that His laws are to become part of our very being in fiber. It's not something that's separate from us. Okay, let's stop here for tonight and we'll continue with chapter 6 next next time.